Today I'd like to talk about Aristophanes and the old comedy that was characteristic of Periclean Athens. Now, Aristophanes is the only example that we have existing of the old comedy. And the old comedy is not all that different in time from the new comedy of Menander, which comes about a century later. But what's characteristic of the old comedy is, and since Aristophanes is the only example of it, they overlap perfectly as far as our historical knowledge, what's characteristic of the old comedy is that it's full of jokes that are at the same time in many respects serious. Uh, what I'd like to conclude in a way, I'll give away my conclusion at the, at the opening, is that comedy is pretty serious stuff. And that although it entertains us, it also informs us and it is one of the more didactic genres of literature. Now, many of you have perhaps had the experience of having somebody tell you a joke and then hearing the same joke from someone else and the same joke from someone else. And at some point you say, oh, look, that's an old joke. They begin telling it to you and say, look, I've heard that joke. It's, it's an old joke. I don't want to hear it anymore. But that's not true of all jokes. It's not true of all humor. Some humor bears repeating. And you, especially when you're reading Aristophanes, when you're looking at com comic plays 2,500 years old, and you find them humorous again and again, as I inevitably do. I find Aristophanes really funny. You have to ask yourself, what makes 2,000-year-old jokes funny? I mean, you'd figure they get stale after a while. What is it that makes us continue to find certain situations or certain um, statements, certain interactions or incongruous situations humorous? Why do we laugh at them? And it could be that some things are permanently funny. In other words, that there are certain flaws or imperfections in the human condition, certain mistakes that people make repeatedly in every generation that bear repeating because they are both informative and humorous. You get a sort of catharsis out of it. You laugh instead of have the uh, pity and fear that we get with tragedy. So it could be that the reason why we like Aristophanes over the course of 25 centuries, why we don't say, oh, take that away, it's Aristophanes, I've heard this joke before, is because he's on to something that's kind of yeah, consistent with the marrow of the human condition. It speaks to us across the centuries, and it bears repeating. I would say in many respects that the plays of Aristophanes are jokes or, or contain jokes that are still funny, that bear repeating time and time again. I would say that's analogous in many respects to the fact that certain tragedies, the real great ones like, say, for example, Hamlet or Oedipus, still get an emotional response to us even after we've seen them 10, 15, 20 times. In other words, every time I go and see Hamlet, a play I know very well, I feel suspense, I feel worry, I feel anxiety, even though I know everybody dies at the end. I mean, I know how the play goes. I'm not surprised that, oh, okay, we're going to have to have the fight scene now and Hamlet and everybody else is going to die. Something about Hamlet speaks to something either permanent in the human condition or something that moves and changes so slowly that the transformation is imperceptible across historical time. I want to suggest that something similar to that, or something analogous to that, is true about Aristophanes. And that there are certain things that are just permanently funny. The mistakes that people make, the mistakes that are typical of the human condition, make us laugh again and again. Whenever I see, uh, for example, Lysistrata, I find that play funny. If any of you know it, it's an intrinsically funny play. Aristophanes has tapped into the main line of comedy. Let me just briefly tell you about uh, the, uh, the plot of Lysistrata. Um, Aristophanes is a contemporary of Thucydides and Socrates. He lives uh, during the Golden Age of Athens. And during the Pel Peloponnesian War, the Athenian women and the Spartan women go on a sex strike so they can make the men stop the war. 
Now, I see some of you laughing, kind of smiling. That's an intrinsically funny idea. The idea that women aren't going to have sex until men give up war, that's a funny thought. The problem is that it's 2,500 years old, if you see what I'm saying. And every time I see that play, I think it's funny. And it taps into something that's true and permanently humorous. Um, there are other kinds of, of gags or, and jokes in, soccer, in uh, Aristophanes that are also similarly continuous over time, that bear repeating. For example, in Lysistrata, one of, the one of the players comes on wearing a two-foot phallus strapped to his loins. And as soon as he steps out on stage, it is one of the oldest and most effective sight gags in the world. People always laugh. They laughed 2,500 years ago. They laughed ever since, and they laugh now. And if they put on an, a, a production of Lysistrata next week, and somebody steps out with a two-foot phallus strapped to his loins, everybody will laugh. The, the whole audience will break up. Why? because we've got something here that touches all of us in a kind of permanent way. Now, another thing we're thinking about in comedy, and it's not true of all of comedy, but it's true of Aristophanes, and it's also true of many other comedians, is that most of comedy is not about individual people, specific people, it's about types of people. Um, arrogance in the wealthy is funny, especially when they get foiled at the end. Inexperience in the young is funny, especially when you know, they get their comeuppance at some point. Um, uh, any of the, the flaws we see in various types of people can be the occasion for humor. And there's something permanent about these occasions for humor that kind of connects to the human condition. So unlike, say, Othello, who is not just an example of a jealous man, but he's Othello, the characters in comedy are, in many respects, types of people rather than specific people. Uh, Hamlet isn't just an example of an indecisive young man. He's Hamlet. Whereas the players that we see in Aristophanes are often caricatures uh, or generalizations about some flaw in the human condition, some mistake that people repeatedly make. And the mistake is funny the first time, and it's funny the tenth time. So that's an interesting and important point about Aristophanes, that most of his plays are about types of people. And Aristophanes' comedy, like most comedy, is a very didactic genre. It tries to teach us something. Aristophanes, like many comedians, finds it impossible to avoid editorializing in his comedies. And when I talk a little bit about the comedies themselves, you'll find that in every case they have some sort of current relevance. In many, in many respects, they're political in their orientation. Uh, since he lives at the time of the Peloponnesian Wars, it's a kind of macabre situation, because remember that he's an Athenian, and that Athens is involved in, in, in a war that ultimately is going to result in the destruction of that city. And at the same time, Aristophanes is churning out some of the greatest comedies ever written. So laughing while the ship sinks right, gives us a certain uneasy feeling and maybe forces uh, the heartiness of the laughter a little bit too hard. Now, these uh, plays, like the tragic plays, were held as a kind of con uh, connecting link to the religion of ancient Athens. In other words, the tragedies were given in a festival and they competed one against, the tragedians competed against each other during a, a festival that was religious in orientation. The same thing was true of the comedies. Comic poets used to write plays, and unlike the tragic poets, the plays they used to write would have to be based upon new and novel plots. They, weren't, they didn't, as a rule, take ancient established myths like the Oedipus myth or something like that and transform it, or the Electra myth, which many of the tragedians handled. Instead, the com comic poets put together their own new uh, plot lines for their dramas, but they were still religious in their orientation, not that they were covered religious themes. Actually, much of Aristophanes' comedy is obscene and kind of full of dirty jokes, but 
It happens during a religious festival, and particularly, it's the, festi it's the spring fertility festival in honor of Dionysus. And if you remember that Dionysus is the god of theater, he's also the god of wine, all right, connected with sex and licentiousness. If you think of something like Euripides' Bacchae, right, he's a chaotic force in the universe. Now, what we find in many comedies, and particularly in many of the comedies of Aristophanes, is that they involve the, the imperfections of human beings and transgressions of moral order. Moral order is broken down and then is brought back. At the end, usually as a rule in comedy, we get a happy ending, unless we get a kind of particularly perverse comedy. And this happy ending always involves the reconfiguration or the re-establishment of the moral order that had been transgressed. If nobody had made any mistakes, there wouldn't be any comedies. Comedy always involves some kind of transgression, always involves some kind of limitation, always involves some kind of mistakes. Now, Aristophanes has bigger fish to fry than merely entertaining you. He is trying at the time that he's living in Athens to alter public policy. And although it seems that he had rather little effect on public policy, and it's entirely possible to find Aristophanes a very funny comedian without knowing any Greek philosophy or any Greek history, when you place him in the context of ancient Greece, particularly Periclean Athens, he makes a lot more sense. Aristophanes was a very conservative figure. He looked back to the old traditions of Athens as being the best traditions. He didn't like these newfangled changes. He particularly disliked the effect of the sophists on the young, and he particularly disliked the effect of the pre-Socratic physicists on the established mythology and religion of the times. Old things are good things for Aristophanes. So as a rule, he lampoons politicians and intellectuals and lawyers and philosophers with a, a view to pointing out to the audience how detrimental these people have been to the city. Old ways are good ways for Aristophanes, a very conservative figure. Now, also in particular, he dislikes Euripides. If he's going to go for tragedians at all, if he likes any kind of tragedy, it's Aeschylus or Sophocles, the old-fashioned, kind of morally solid tragedians. Euripides is a little bit too flaky, a little bit too neurotic, perhaps a little bit too realistic in his uh, treatment of the human condition. And also many of his plots he thought were morally evil. Uh, there's a lot of incest and things like that in Euripides. And Aristophanes said, this is no good. This is, being, this is a bad influence on our public life. So Aristophanes' plays are conservative and in many respects backward looking, but they're also very funny. And they're permanently funny. And I would say that that's where their real value lies in the long run. The great thing about Aristophanes is that he knows how to write comedy. And whether you like the politics involved, because many of the ideas are not very attractive, you can't help but think they're funny. And that's what comedy is supposed to do, minimally anyway. Now, think about the influence of sophistry on Athens. It undermined religion, undermined mythology, and tended to subvert what many thought of as the natural order, uh, the superiority of age to youth, the superiority of men to women, uh, the superiority of tradition to innovation. All these things are brought into question by the sophistic tradition and that tendency towards rational interrogation of tradition. Aristophanes is largely against that. In a number of his plays, he calls these things into question, particularly um, if you remember the, what I said about Cleon, the demagogue, and the important, who was a, an important political figure in Athens at the time of Thucydides, was, at the time that Thucydides was writing his Peloponnesian Wars and during the war itself. Uh, in the play called The Knights, 
He lampoons and harpoons Cleon again and again, showing him to be a rogue, showing him to be a knave, showing him to be an evil man. So there's a considerable amount of politics going on here. Aristophanes then is a man of his time, but he also creates plays that are timeless, that go on forever. Now, he's associated with the country party. He likes uh, the idea of the ancient traditions that tie us to the land, those cosmopolites, those sophisticates who live in the city of Athens proper within, within the town itself, tend to be exposed to corrupting influences. Um, he was one of the great enemies of Socrates. You see, now, for all his belligerence and for all his wit, Aristophanes is not the most intellectually sophisticated of the Greek authors. He thinks that Socrates is essentially just another sophist. He can't tell any difference. To him, anybody that questions established tradition is an evil man, is a corrupter of the city. He's not able to distinguish between Socrates, who was profoundly opposed to the sophistic movement, and things like um, Gorgias or um, uh, Thrasymachus, any of the great sophistic writers. So anybody who questions the established order is, for Aristophanes, a dangerous man, and he's opposed to that. He tries to do what he can to discredit that sort of thing. He also, because he's writing during the war, and because he's at least reasonably understanding of what's going on, he's very much a part of the peace party. He writes plays about peace. He writes plays about people that make their own separate peace with the Spartans. He says, essentially, look, war is a tragic and miserable waste of time. I don't want to write a, a kind of sermon for you because that doesn't persuade people as well as comedy does. If I were to persuade you that war is an evil thing, that it's a waste of time, that we ought to withdraw from the Peloponnesian War insofar as it's possible, he does it by satire, by making fun of things he opposes. And much of his political drama is connected with the Peloponnesian War, writing at a really kind of gruesome, macabre time in Athenian history. Now let's think about a, let's take an example of the comedy of Aristophanes, and the one that is a personal favorite of mine is called Clouds, and if any of you have read it, it's just an outstanding piece of work, and one of the nice things about Aristophanes is not only that he's witty and funny, but also he's brief. Right? It's not like Thucydides where you have to wade through four or five hundred pages. It's not like Aristotle that appears to go on forever and he covers everything in the universe. Aristophanes in and out in 50 pages. Very, very nice. And doesn't suffer too much in translation. There are some plays on words which don't carry over. There are some uh, rhymes and, and, play, uh, and messing with meter and things like that that look incongruous and are kind of laughable in the Greek. You don't get that in the English. But for the most part, Aristophanes moves very well from one language to another. Now, in the, in the clouds, he has a go at Socrates. And Socrates in the clouds is not the Socrates we see, uh, we see in Plato's dialogues. It's not the Socrates that we see in, say, the writings of Xenophon. The Socrates here is a clearly bad man. He's clearly a corrupter of Athens. He's clearly one of the sources of Athens' difficulties. Socrates represents the entire sophistic movement in the clouds because Aristophanes can't tell any difference between one sophist and another. And Socrates looks like just another uh, one of these meddlesome, corrupting influences to him. In addition, he chooses two kind of representative figures of Athenian society. He chooses a figure called, or he creates a figure called Strepsiades, who's uh, a father. He represents the old Athenian values, but he's become somewhat corrupt. He's been running up big debts. He has trouble controlling his slaves. He has trouble controlling his son. He has trouble controlling his wife. 
indicative of the fact that Athenian society is becoming degenerate and corrupt. The normal, natural, traditional order of society is beginning to break apart, and Stripsiades is an example of that. He indicates that there's something wrong in Athens. Juxtaposed against him is, Stripsiades, is, is his son, who's called Pheidippides. And Pheidippides is a wastrel. He's a young man who likes high living. He likes fast horses, which is, I guess, the Athenian analog of fast cars, fast women, fast living. He's having a real good time, and he's spending his father's money, which strikes him as a very entertaining way to spend his life. He moves from one horse to another, from one object of pleasure to another. And as a consequence, Strepsiades is becoming bankrupt. In other words, he can't pay all the debts. And his son is running up a mountain of debts, and he doesn't know what to do. So in the opening scene, we see the son asleep, because he has no cares in the world, and Strepsiades wondering, look, how am I going to pay these bills? Look at this bill. Look at that bill. A bill for a horse, a bill for a sulky, a bill for the feeding and grooming of horse. What shall I do? Well, Strepsiades says, I have it. I'll get my lazy, good-for-nothing, spendthrift son to enroll in Socrates' think tank, or his think shop, or it doesn't translate very well into English, but his thinking place. Go to that school, learn from Socrates, and particularly you'll learn the very, very important art of how to avoid your debts, how to lie, how to win court battles even when you have the weaker case rather than the stronger case. The idea here is that Socrates is a professional shyster. And he teaches people how to corrupt the judicial system, how to renege on their debts, and how to undermine the moral order of Athens. So Socrates is conflated with the sophists and a tradition that he actually hated. And in, in addition, he's connected with the tradition of pre-Socratic physics, which is similarly rationalistic in its orientation, similarly tends to undermine the traditional mythological foundations of Athenian society. So he wants to send his son to Socrates' think tank. Unfortunately, the boy knows full well that that's no fun. He said, I'll never be able to go and talk to my friends again once they know that I'm a follower of Socrates. Those guys, they never go out. They don't do any, get involved in exercise. They have very little to do with public affairs. And mostly they think all this hogwash, there's all this talk and all this gibberish about who knows what. And I don't want to go do that. I want to go race horses. That's what I like to do. And there's a fight an argument between the son and the father, and eventually the son is just cast out of the house. But he's cast out saying, well, look, I'm going to go to my uncle who shares my taste in horses, and I'm going to still run up big bills. I'm just going to go over there. The disunity in family is another sign of the corruption of Athens. Also, while he's thinking up this plan, uh, Strepsiades makes the point that I didn't want to raise my boy this way. I wanted to raise him in the countryside in which he'd get the good country air and learn how to work and things like that. He wouldn't be subjected to these corrupting influences. But my wife, my wife the shrew, she wouldn't let me name him what I want. She wouldn't let, him raise me, let me raise him the way I want. Doesn't let me do anything. Here I am, a henpecked husband with a son I can't control, debts out of control. I better go see a professional sophist. Well, the idea is that women are leaving their subordinate place, the young are no longer subordinate to the old, and honesty is out the window. The, our newfangled, corrupt generation has gotten to the point where the best thing you can do is to learn the important art of how to lie, how to get away and not pay your debts, even though they're legitimate debts. So, kicks him out, son's gone, and he's walking around saying, what am I gonna do? And then it occurs to him, I'll enroll in Socrates' school. Old as I am, I'll learn how 
to get the better of people in argument even though I'm wrong. I'll learn how to be a sophist and how to be an evil man. I think I've got the answer. So he goes over to Socrates' school. And everyone in Socrates' school is a pretentious intellectual lout. Roguish, evil, lying, conniving. There's not an honest man there. And they vie with each other to see who can be more dishonest. Now, clearly, he's painting with a very broad brush here. Right. Socrates is conflated with the sophists, and that's not entirely a fair thing. And he's also conflated, conflated with those who were involved in the investigation of physical nature, or with the early Greek physicists. So he knocks on the door, and some obnoxious young man opens the door and says, Who is it that knocks so stupidly? We're wise in here. Well, he does go in. He says, All right, I'd like to take these courses, I'd like to learn from Socrates how to avoid paying my debts, because let's face it, when we get down to it, that's what all you guys are about, isn't it? That's all you really teach here. Socrates is, in fact, corrupting the young men of Athens. And uh, it's worth noting in a historical sense that in Socrates' apology, when he is about to be condemned to death, and when he tries to explain what his life has all been about, he says, one of the most important of my accusers, apart from politicians and other vermin running, running, running Athens, is a certain <clears throat> comic poet. And clearly who he has in mind is Aristophanes, lampooning Socrates, trying to conflate him with people that he really despises. So he's one of the people involved in getting the conservative elements of Athens to identify Socrates mistakenly as a corrupter of youth. He goes into this think tank or think shop or thinkery. It's hard to figure out how to quite uh, translate it. He goes into the thinkery and says, what do you learn here? And he says, oh, we learn all the most important metaphysical sort of stuff, big important things. For example, why is it that gnats buzz? Deep issue. Why do they buzz? Because they fart continuously. A kind of playing to the audience, dumb, dirty jokes. I mean, he'll do anything for a laugh. Why? Well, first of all, because it does what comedy's supposed to do. It entertains you and amuses you. You get that catharsis. But second of all, he's lampooning the investigations of early natural science. All you do is study uh, the, the noise uh, that, uh, that the farts of uh, gnats make. Or how do you find out what shoe size a flea has? The implication being that these guys never bathe and that they're covered with vermin. Well, Socrates pulls a flea from his head, and after sticking the feet of the flea in wax and checking out the shoe size, he knows. And Stripsiades says, oh, what a great breakthrough. You know the shoe size of fleas. What a tremendous achievement. The idea being, of course, that he thinks very little of these achievements. This is all hot air. If you know anything, it's trivial. The really important stuff you have to know in life is how to be an old-fashioned, traditional kind of a guy. That's what he thinks virtue amounts to. So Socrates takes him under his wing and he says, Stripsiades, what do you want to know? And he says, look, I want to know how to avoid my debts. Let's stop kidding each other. Teach me how to do that. He says, well, first of all, I have to teach you other things. I mean, I'll teach you that, of course. But you know, if I'm going to make an order of you, I have to teach you about metrics, and I have to teach you about heuristic, and I have to teach you what the difference is between a trough and a troughette. Uh, there are genders in the Greek language, and there are some things that don't translate very well. But the idea is that Socrates teaches him heuristic hair splitting. He teaches him how to lie with great facility. And as the sophists used to claim, he teaches them how to make the worse argument appear the stronger. So that's what he goes there to learn. After trying to teach him for a while, Socrates is dissatisfied. And of course, Socrates is apparently dissatisfied by a great many things. 
many things. He's dissatisfied by Athens, but he's also dissatisfied by the traditional knowledge of, uh, of Athenian society and the traditional mores that it had. When Socrates is first introduced, he's in a basket, which is where one of the He's ascending to the clouds. He's moving up the divided line, if you know what I'm talking about from Plato's Republic. He's moving into the realm of pure intellection. And uh, uh, Strepsiades says, well, what are you doing up there? He says, I'm observing the wonders of nature. I'm moving into the heavens with my mind and all sorts of stuff. And when he comes in, he sees the students not in baskets moving up into the earth. They're looking right down on the ground. They're kind of on all fours peering into the dirt in the ground. And of course, if you imagine what that's going to look like on stage, it's a stupid kind of ignominious posture. Their butts are in the air, their eyes are on the ground, they don't know what they're doing, and they think this is the deepest stuff around. <laughs> right? He's looking for cheap jokes at the expense of his political and kind of moral enemies. Well, he asks, what are these boys doing? And they say, here's the problem. We're trying to investigate the mysteries under the earth. And he says, well, I know the mysteries under the earth. It has onions. That's what's under the earth. I mean, I'm an old-fashioned kind of country guy. He says, no, no, we're looking into the mysteries of nature and peering down. The idea of peering into dirt is kind of stupid. And he says, well, why are all these guys' butts in the air? I mean, why are they in, in this odd posture? And he says, they're also with their butts looking at the stars and studying astronomy. And there are all kinds of dopey jokes associated with that. Also, there are, I mean, while Strepsiades is in the uh, school of Socrates, there are all kinds of jokes at the expense of lawyers and politicians in particular, and also all kinds of caustic jokes about homosexuals. Um, it's often been said that Athens was very accepting and, and uh, uh, allowed for homosexual relationships between men, and that's true up to a point. There's a certain tradition, particularly a rather aristocratic elite tradition, in which homosexuality was thought of as being roughly speaking normal, especially for young men and older men. But that's not true of all elements in Athenian society. The old-fashioned, conservative, kind of countryside of Athenian society hasn't got much use and disapproves of these homosexual relations. And there are lots of, of rather caustic and obscene jokes, I mean, just dirty jokes about homosexuals, not just in this play, but throughout the plays of Aristophanes. He represents the old guard in the traditional conception of morality. And much of, of the idea of having their, their heads down and their butts up has to do with homosexual jokes, All right, or at least implicitly. It's quite a bit of that. Now, he's walking around trying to learn these deep mysteries. Strepsiade says, well, okay, when am I going to finally learn how to avoid bets? So he teaches him a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and ultimately Socrates says, you know, you're just too stupid to teach anything to. Strepsiades, you're an old man. You forget everything I teach you. You really have no facility for speech. I don't think you're ever going to make a good shyster. So I'm just going to boot you out of my, of my school. You're not the guy I need. And he said, oh, please, I mean, I promise that I will pay you a big sum. I promise by Zeus that if you teach me how to avoid my debts, I will pay you a large sum of money. Now look at the irony and incongruity there. He's trying to learn how to avoid his debts, and he promises him by Zeus that I certainly will give you this money, how to swear false oaths, all things like that. And Socrates comes back and says, Zeus, oh, you're such a blockhead. I can't teach you anything. There's no such thing as Zeus. No, 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 no. Now Vortex is the only real god. Zeus, oh, we gave up on that long ago. We believe in the clouds. They're divine. We believe in Vortex. We believe in a, a number of natural things as being somehow divine, but we don't believe in Zeus or any of that hogwash. Come on, that's for old fogies like you. A couple of points are being made here. First off, you know what a vortex is? I mean, it's, it's, 
if you mentioned like your bathtub, when it, when it drains out, I mean, that little kind of spiral shape. Well, some of the pre-Socratic physicists, I mean, you actually have to know a little bit about the background to see the joke here, had said that instead of the world being held up by some mythological being like Atlas, instead it was held up by a vortex, the way a ball might be in your bathtub. And he's sort of lampooning the transition from the traditional Athenian morality and mythology to this newfangled pre-Socratic physics. That's what's going on there. And in a way, he's, what he's saying or the message that's being delivered there is uh, similar to the philosophical message that Nietzsche put in the gay science when he said that God is dead. When Zeus is gone and Vortex is his replacement, you might as well say, look, God is dead. There's no such thing. We've given up on all that jazz. So he's aware of the radical implications of this new science. It's just that he attributes them to Socrates, who is a guy that doesn't hold these views. Instead, Socrates seems to be very happy with the clouds. The clouds are a kind of divinity to him, and the clouds form a sort of chorus in this play, and that's where the, the name the clouds comes from. And in many respects, the clouds are able through their choric function to editorialize in the name of Aristophanes, to say the things that Aristophanes wants to get off his chest. And often they're rather off the point, and often he can't avoid kind of sticking in stuff that's more or less extraneous. For example, at one point the clouds say, say to the audience, this is a really great play, you should vote this first. Right? He breaks out of the action altogether and says, you know what a great play this is? I think you should think this through. Right? So the clouds engage in what is called parabasis. Now, this is an important thing if you're going to understand Arist Aristophanic comedy. Parabasis is a particular technique by which one of the characters in a play steps out of the action of the play and addresses the audience directly. Um, and it's, it's restricted for the most part to comedy, and Aristophanes makes good use of it, but you occasionally see it in other, uh, even contemporary playwrights, think of somebody like Bertolt Brecht. Right, in which someone will direct, directly talk to you, what it does is sort of undo the distinction between representation and the audience. He says, well, let me, let me tell you what's really going on here. Let me address you outside of the action of the play. Aristophanes, in his chorus, in this play and in his other plays, addresses the audience directly and tells them what he thinks they ought to know, whether he's editorializing about politics or morals, or whether he's just saying, kind of stumping, kind of lobbying for his play, vote for me, vote for me, this is a great play. I've improved it considerably. So the clouds form a sort of chorus in this play, and they are kind of divinities for Socrates. And the clouds in, are, are representative or symbolic of the flights of abstraction characteristic of Socratic philosophy. If any of you know Plato, uh, Platonism, if you know Plato's theory of forms, the idea that there's a, an, an ethereal, insubstantial reality that all the, all the physical world participates in and is connected to, the clouds are a very nice representation of the fuzziness, the kind of nebulous quality of those abstractions. And he says, naturally Socrates worships the clouds. He doesn't believe in Zeus. Vortex is king now. And while Vortex is king, we might as well go for something tangible yet almost celestial like the clouds. So the clouds have many ironic functions in this play, and particularly as a chorus. Now, Strepsiades is at a loss. The clouds don't strike him as being interesting divinities. I mean, he was willing to go along with the flow as long as he can get out from under his debts, but Socrates doesn't want to teach him anymore. He thinks he's dumb. He asks the clouds, what should I do? And the clouds say, the right answer for you is to send your son Pheidippides. Go to Pheidippides, get him back from his uncle, and tell him, look, I need you to go and take care of this business. So he goes to Pheidippides, and surprisingly enough, Pheidippides says yes. And the reason why Pheidippides says yes, I'll study with Socrates, is that he thinks his father has lost his mind. After 
talking to Socrates and being educated by Socrates, his opinions and his behavior and his demeanor has changed so much that he thinks either the old man's crazy or the old man's senile. So I better take over the family funds. I better take over his position in the family. Again, a subversion of the natural and traditional order. Who's it caused by? Exposure to Socrates. So he corrupts not just the young men, but also potentially the old men of Athens. All of Athens has been corrupted by these new intellectual influences. And Socrates is lampooning that. The old moral order of Athens is breaking up, and these new would-be sophisticated thinkers are really at the bottom of it. Aristophanes is their enemy, and Socrates is kind of the, the epitome of this tradition, of this tendency. Now, Pheidippides joins the thinkery, or the think tank, and becomes, after a few days, an accomplished sophist. He can make all kinds of meaningless, hair-splitting distinctions. He's brought into the terminology of Platonic philosophy. He understands the whole of Socrates' rigmarole about the good and the true and all that. And he teaches a little bit of, his, of it to his father, who he thinks mad or senile. And he's thinking, well, when am I going to go to court and have my dad locked up, or just at least have his, his property and his power taken away, upsetting the natural balance of things? Well, he decides, I'll have to consult with Socrates and see if he can corrupt me further. In the meantime, the father, who has learned a little bit of sophistry from the son, who has now been corrupted by Socrates, goes and manages to avoid paying his debts to a couple of his creditors. And he's making all kinds of stupid, ridiculous remarks. What, you can't tell the difference between a foul and a foulet? Oh, that's ridiculous. A trough and a troughette? I could never pay somebody like that. You, I swore by Zeus. First of all, there's no such thing by, as Zeus. Second, Vortex is king. Second of all, swearing has gone kind of out of fashion. And besides, if you take me to court, it's only going to cost you even more money because I'm such a good talker now. He's very proud of himself. And the more he talks like this, the more not just his son, but his, his creditors and everybody around him thinks he's crazy. The guy's kind of gone off the deep end. He's senile or he's lost his mind. A whole series of humorous interactions in which he gets the better, but his evil comes back to haunt him. Here's the restoration of moral order I was talking about, or at least an ironic restoration of it. After he wins these battles against his two creditors, the son comes home and they just start to discuss literature. They talk about literary issues. And uh, they're talking about tragedy. And the old man likes Aeschylus or Sophocles, the old established tragedians. And the son says, only a dunderhead, a, a country bumpkin would like something like that. A very unsophisticated taste, moral order, and things like that. Me, I like Euripides. I like tales about incest. Now, obviously, he's been corrupted. Obviously, I mean, not only is the target here Socrates, but also Euripides and that whole kind of humanistic tendency, the whole tendency of moving from the divine and the mythological to the human and the merely secular. And after they have this argument, Philippides says, you know, now that I think about it, I should just start beating my father. And he just starts laying it on, hitting his own father. And his father says, how now? What's this? Why are you beating me? And again, think about what the sight gags are going to be like here. We've got slapstick humor. Here's a son hitting his father on stage. It must have cracked the whole audience up. It's a funny thing to see. And it must have been all kinds of howling and screaming. You can see how this is going to be perfect for representation on a stage. And the son says, well, look, I learned from Socrates that I should beat my father and that the entire previous order should be upset because, after all, I'm wise now. I've learned Socratic philosophy, and you, you're a dumb old guy who likes Sophocles. That's ridiculous. So I should beat you for your stupid opinions in literature, and I should also beat you because you're old, and I should also beat you, well, because it seems to me that you deserve a good beating. Socrates has proven to me through the power of his rhetoric that if old men beat their sons, there should come some point of time where there's a little bit of payback where sons beat old men. 
And of course, yeah, you see how it is an intrinsically funny idea, right? I mean, to over, to over the course of 25 centuries, you can't help but see that this is funny, right? So we get slapstick humor here, we get political satire, we get the whole gamut of humorous things. And it's 40 or 50 pages in and out. I mean, it's a beautiful economical piece of work. So he beats his father, and he says, oh, now, you know, where has, has Athens come to? Where do we stand now that sons beat their fathers and the established moral order has been subverted? Well, he says, don't worry, Dad. It's not any, that I have anything particular against you. It's just that I'm much more learned than you are now, and you're just going to have to take your lumps. And incidentally, I think I'm going to have to go to court and have all your property taken away, so I can, because you're senile and dumb, and you should take a good beating every once in a while. And... Don't hold the, the literary opinions that you happen to hold right now. But if this is any kind of solace to your dad, Socrates also proved that I should beat my mother, so I'm going to go find mom and give her a good beating too. What does it mean, of course, that sons are no longer show any kind of filial piety? All the traditional mores of Athens have been undermined through this would-be philosophical discourse. So he's right on target and makes some very unkind Right? cuts towards Socrates, most of which are unmerited. But on the other hand, if any of you have read the symposium, you know the dialogue, where Plato has a go at Aristophanes, well, he writes a sort of reply to this, or in other words, they sort of balance each other out. Plato's representation of Socrates is highly laudatory, and his representation of Aristophanes is that Aristophanes is a swine, a stupid buffoon, a pig who lurches from one lust and passion to another. So it's a, there's a certain amount of kind of literary payback here. The difference being that while both Plato and Aristophanes are great artists, Plato has a real good head on his shoulders, and Aristophanes is kind of a, of a dense guy. He doesn't really understand the main intellectual trends of Athens at the time. On the other hand, he does represent the old guard in Athenian society. He represents good old-fashioned Athenian virtue. So now, where, where are we? Well, sons are beating their fathers. Socrates is studying the clouds. Vortex is God. Zeus is gone. Everything has been turned upside down, and young men have gone off to find their mothers so they can give them a beating. Well, we're in a very bad fix. What shall we do? Well, Strepsiades finally sees the light. He says, he's going to go beat his own mother. I can't believe that I was so foolish as to do something like that. So he asks the clouds, what should I do? And he says, and the clouds say to him, because the chorus is always there at opportune times, says, well, first of all, you shouldn't have tried to get out from under your debts. You know that you're a wicked man, too. Corruption isn't restricted to, to these philosophers. It's also gotten right to the marrow and fiber of Athenian society. And you're a good example of it. Pay your debts and stop trying to weasel out of them, number one. Number two, perhaps you should go for a little payback. Perhaps that would work well for you. So what, at the end, what Strepsiades decides to do is go over to the thinkery or the think tank and burn it down. So he climbs to the roof of the think tank, and there he sees, of course, Socrates studying the heavens in his usual kind of absent-minded professor, kind of pretentious intellectual kind of way. And he says, well, here, let me have a little argument with you, but this will be an argument of fire. Right? This is my kind of argument. I'm going to burn this down. And, that's, and at that point, that's the way the play ends. One assumes that the son is going to have the father declared legally incompetent, but the father is now not incompetent. Notice the irony. He finally sees the light, understands Socrates for what he is, understands moral order, but it's too late now. He's already been declared mad, and his madness involves real sanity, finally seeing Socrates and this entire kind of um, rationalistic tradition for what it is, corruption and evil. So they burn the thinkery down, 
And Socrates is at last seen, you know, kind of his baneful influence and the influence of all the sophists has been taken out of Athens. And that's a good thing. And the only difficulty is it's too late for the old man. He's going to lose his position. And there's a sort of ironic ending in the sense that we don't get a reintegration into society. We don't get a really happy ending. We get an improvement, perhaps, in the moral or uh, in Strepsiades' understanding of morality. But you don't really get the change from a, a, a miserable condition caused by some sort of misfortune or imperfection to a, a true happy ending. It's a kind of, a, of an ironic ending. Now, what is the import of this? It is obviously a political play. He thinks that, on the whole, the entire tradition of sophistry and rational inquiry into nature should be burned down. The real cause of Athens' problems is giving up the old traditional ways of handling things, is giving up the old virtues, the old mythology, the old religion. At the end of the play, Strepsiades says, I'm sorry for blaspheming against Zeus. Please don't hold it against me. I now see that these men with their new gods and the new ideas are evil men. The old ways are the best ways. In that respect, Strepsiades represents the voice of Aristophanes. At other times, Aristophanes' voice comes through in the cloud chorus. But in both cases, Aristophanes is the conservative figure in Athens. And much of comedy can be seen as an attempt to morally improve society. Sometimes it has kind of uh, progressive or radical implications. But in the case of Aristophanes, it has conservative implications. He's using bawdy language, obscene, dirty jokes, slapstick comedy, irony, parody, all kinds of stuff with the intention of setting Athens back on track in the old way. Well, what I'd like to finish with is thinking a little bit about the comic hero here and the fact that comedy is real serious stuff. Think about how serious this is as an attempt to engage the intellectual activity of the time. It is hard to think of another 40 or 50 pages which could cover so much territory so elegantly and be so rich and full of implications for our understanding of, the, uh, of Periclean Athens. Um, the hero, or I guess perhaps there's no real hero here, uh, Strepsiades, is saved too late. In that respect, someone like, somewhat like Athens. Maybe they wise up, but they wise up too late. And although it has a political message, because he wants to reverse the old tendencies, he wants peace, he wants established moral order and things like that, Aristophanes... Uh, has perhaps a, a sort of pessimistic view of what possibly can be done to reconcile us to this prevailing or traditional moral order. Perhaps all of his uh, suggestions come too late. It's thought that he had very little influence on the actual progress of political policy. But I would say overall that that's not where the enduring greatness of Aristophanes lies. What's great about the clouds and the other plays of Aristophanes is that they're funny. You can read Lysistrata without understanding any, without knowing anything about Greek history. And you can read The Clouds without knowing anything about Socratic philosophy and still laugh like hell. Because they're funny. And that means that whatever his political position, because to be honest, many of the things that Aristophanes believes in are most unpleasant. I mean, not attractive ideas. I mean, he's a hidebound conservative who doesn't even have the native wit to tell the difference between Gorgias and Socrates, between Thrasymachus and Socrates. In other words, he's not the most sophisticated thinker. A gifted writer, yes, but not a profound or deep thinker. And while the intellectual content of these plays may or may not be attractive and the moral of them may or may not be something we want to carry over today, 
the lasting value in them lies in the fact that they are funny. They are good comedies. And the old comedy may not be the best comedy, but it's perennial. It's everlasting comedy, because we still laugh at Lysistrata. You'd still laugh when I told you the, the outline of the plot of this play. It is an intrinsically funny, and if not edifying, certainly entertaining organ, uh, type of dramatic art.